0: So there was a a novel written in the 60s uh, called Silence that was turned into a movie called Silence about five years ago. And it's a story that follows two Portuguese missionaries in the 1600s as they go into Japan uh, to try and share the gospel. At that time, Christianity and converting to Christianity were both illegal in the country of Japan, so these missionaries have to sneak in. And basically, the movie follows all the different kinds of opposition and small successes they have as they navigate Uh, trying to share the gospel in a closed country in the face of a lot of opposition. Eventually, these two missionaries are separated, and there's a scene after they had both been captured uh, where one of the missionaries is led out onto the beach on the coast. And he's with his captors and an interpreter, and they're looking down hundreds of yards further down the beach, and they see some Japanese peasants being brought out from the, the jungle on the edge of the shore out to the beach, and after them is brought out his missionary friend. And what, what these Japanese peasants are being brought out for is ultimately to be uh, tortured and executed. And what this missionary who's watching from afar learns is that these Japanese people had actually already recanted of their faith. And so when he asks his captors why they're continuing to be, to be punished, to be tortured, and eventually going to be executed, he, he gets this answer back, from his captor. And what they say is you have to remember there's uh, lots of other Japanese Christians on all of these islands off the coast. And ultimately we think what will most effectively squash their faith is if we get the missionary who had been teaching them and applying the gospel to their lives, if we get him to recant. We think that's what's most going to dishearten the Christians in this area. That's how we think we can most effectively and quickly squish Christianity out of Japan. We want to pressure the missionaries. We want to dishearten the people by disheartening their leaders. And that that is precisely the kind of situation that Paul is trying to avoid and trying to, to actively counter in this chapter of 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and we're going to see how Paul gives Timothy a clear message about how when Timothy looks ahead at the suffering that's going to come his way because of his gospel ministry, Uh, he is supposed to learn something from this part of Paul's letter to him. And what Paul wants Timothy to learn in these first 13 verses of 2 Timothy 2 is that he needs to be encouraged by the gospel to endure for the gospel. He needs to be encouraged by the gospel to endure for the gospel. Those are basically, we're just going to split that idea into two as we work through this text, but we're going to work through it in kind of the opposite way of the order I just said it. We're first going to look at uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1-7, talking about what it'll look like for Timothy to endure for the gospel. And then in verses 8-13, to we're going to see how he is encouraged by the gospel. So we're going to start in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1, looking at how Timothy is to endure for the gospel. So I'm going to read here you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So our passage here, the first verse of it, starts with that little phrase, you then. And what Paul is using that you then to do is to remind Timothy of the thing he just finished saying in 2 Timothy 1. Where in the last two verses, he had been contrasting this one guy, his name was Onesiphorus, with everybody else in the province of Asia where Paul was. And what he's contrasting about Onesiphorus and every other person in the province of Asia was that Onesiphorus alone had remained faithful and loyal to Paul. See, Paul was writing this letter from prison, and so uh, the fact that Onesiphorus stayed faithful and loyal to him was pretty significant. It meant that he wasn't bailing on Paul and the message Paul had been preaching, whereas everyone else in the province of Asia had. So what, what Paul is going to do is he's going to use the rest of these next verses we're going to look at to encourage Timothy to be like Onesiphorus. Uh, parents, it's like when you tell stories of the friends you had when you were a teenager to, to help try and teach your kids about what being a good friend looks like and what being a bad friend looks like. Uh, you'll, you'll say stuff like, I had this friend Mark when I was a teenager, and Mark was a really fun guy to be around, uh, but one, one Halloween... He blew up our neighbor's mailbox with fireworks and blamed it on me. And I got grounded for a decade. Uh, don't be friends with a mark. Instead you should be friends with people like my friend Ezra. See, I had a, when I was a teenager, had this really significant medical emergency. I needed an organ donor and Ezra gave me a kidney. Don't be friends with a mark. See, I want you to be friends with an Ezra. Don't be a mark, be an Ezra. That's the, the message that Paul is going to be relaying to Timothy. You want to be faithful to the gospel. You are going to need to endure suffering. And I want you to be like Anesiphorus as you do it. So let's, re, let's return to verse 1 and see what the rest of that verse begins with. It says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That, that word that says, be strong in the Greek, it sounds like an instructive command, something Timothy is to bear down and be strong. When in reality, the, the verb tense is what's called a passive verb. So we would actually read it more helpfully in English as be made strong or be strengthened, have something act on you to make you strong for what you're about to encounter. And, and Timothy is gonna learn from the rest of these verses that come after what it will look like for him to be strong But you'll notice that verse 1 tells us where we go for that strength. What is it that will make us strong for what lies ahead? And it's the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul uses grace in kind of an interesting way here because oftentimes the way that we talk about grace is restricted basically just to the start of the Christian life. That, That is to say, when someone professes faith in Jesus, we say, now they have received the grace Of God it's a thing that you need at the start of your Christian life but Paul is talking about grace as something that yes you absolutely need at the start but it's also a thing that you're going to need at every difficult point along the way Paul sees grace like we see gas when we're going on a long road trip see we would say to someone who's planning to drive from Abbotsford to the Okanagan you're a fool if you only put a half a cup of gas in your car right like that's enough to start the engine to let it idle for a few seconds but if you want to make that 400 kilometer journey you need a full tank and that's not to say that grace is something we run out of that we need replenished in our life but it is to say that we need grace the whole way through it's not enough to just say i'll rely on god's grace to make me a christian and then i'll push the car from here to the okanagan i need god's grace. The whole way through. And that's what Paul wants Timothy to see, that if he's going to endure for the gospel, he needs to rely on God's grace the whole way. So that's that's how Timothy is going to endure for the gospel. He needs to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, Paul reminds Timothy of what the nature of his work is that he needs to be strengthened for to endure in. So let me read 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So in one sentence here, uh, Paul is recapping for Timothy the nature of his mission. Uh, In his first letter to Timothy, it's called 1 Timothy in our Bibles, in chapter 3, he kind of gives a, a, a bit of a marking rubric by which Timothy will decide who is and who is not a reliable person a reliable man who will be set up as an elder in one of the churches Timothy is helping to grow uh, so that they will stick to the gospel. But what Paul is, is doing here is he is grounding Timothy's need to be strengthened by reminding him of the important work he is a part of. See, for Timothy, the, the appointing of, the training up of, of elders to lead churches was the role that he played in the bigger mission of the whole church, And so lest we read this verse and think, well, if I'm not setting up elders in new churches, I don't have to listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is simply reminding Timothy of the unique role that he plays. And in that same way, all of us could be reminded of the unique role that we all play in the mission of the church. The mission of the church is summarized in Matthew 28, where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples right before he ascends to heaven. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That is in effect the mission of the church. And Timothy's unique role within that mission was to make sure that the churches that were being formed were being led by healthy, qualified, reliable men as their elders. But the question should arise for us, what then is our unique role that we need to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus to continue it? And I would say to you that it's gonna look different in all kinds of different contexts, but generally we are all part of similar mission fields in some sense. See, if if you have uh, other people that live in the same house as you, you have a mission field at home, be it your, your friends if you have roommates, be it your children if you're a parent, be it your spouse if you're married, be it your parents if you're a kid, all of those different kinds of relationships are your mission field, where where you are supposed to make disciples. If if you have co-workers, you have a mission field at work. If you have the same uh, barista that you order coffee from day after day, you have a mission field at the coffee shop. And those are all relationships wherein we we can either begin to share the gospel with someone who's never heard it before, or if we know that they already believe the gospel, we can encourage them in it to help them grow in their their knowledge, in their love, in their obedience to Jesus. See, though our mission field don't all look like Timothy's, we all have a gospel mission field. So as we look at the rest of what Timothy is going to be teaching, being taught by Paul, what he needs to know to endure for the gospel, that is a lesson we need to know to endure in the mission we have set before each of us. And so as we get into verse 3, we're going to look at why it is that Paul needs to write this kind of letter to Timothy at this time. And as I read verse 3, it'll become apparent. It says, join with me in suffering. We read that as an, as an invitation, right? Like a, like if your friend invites you to join the gym, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, if you feel like it, you might join it in January, but you're likely going to quit it by March if it's not the kind of thing that's really up your alley. But in the Greek, this phrase that we have in English, join with me in suffering, is actually just one word. And it's a compound word that's just literally together, evil, suffer. And it's a command. So so when Paul is inviting Timothy, as it appears to be at first, into suffering voluntarily, what he's actually doing is he's saying, Timothy, you will suffer evil like I have suffered evil. That's why you need to be strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. That's why you need to be reminded of the significance of the mission that you're on. Because suffering is coming. It's not just an invitation, but it's a command. Uh, The fact that this is a command and not an invitation is a little bit weird to us. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around. Because for the last number of generations, we've been largely able to avoid suffering for our faith if we want. Uh, there's a couple of ways that we typically do it. Either we, we, we try to live lives of quiet faithfulness, right? Where we say, I'm personally going to obey the gospel, but I'm going to be a, a silent Christian. Where if I just keep my head down and I don't make a big deal out of things that I, I think are wrong in the world, or, or if I stay quiet on issues I might uh, be called to speak to, actually, I won't get any pushback. I won't catch any flack for my faith. So, so we either take that route of kind of retreat and withdrawal or we take a more proactive route where we say if i can just order society in the right way then i can avoid suffering in any case even if i am outwardly faithful in my uh, my life my speech my conduct and we think if i just pass the right laws if i elect the right officials if i make sure the wrong laws aren't passed and the wrong officials aren't elected I can just bypass suffering altogether, despite what the Bible might say about the inevitability of suffering. Uh, Paul has no such illusions about his life, and he has no such illusions for Timothy's life. He says, join with me in suffering as a command. You will suffer evil like I have suffered evil if you are going to be faithful to the call on your life, to the role of ministry you have before you. And this is a pretty big deal. Right to, to suffer evil is not an easy thing. So thankfully what Paul is going to do for Timothy is he's going to get into three illustrations that are going to show Timothy what it will require of him to endure this evil that he is going to suffer. He uses three different illustrations like a good preacher does. Uh, the first is the, the end of verse 3 and the start of verse 4. I'll read it again. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So so what is it about a soldier that Paul wants Timothy to learn and apply to him when he's enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel? Well, well, he wants him to realize that soldiers are focused. They don't get entangled in civilian affairs. What Paul means by entangled is, is wrapped up in or consumed by and what he means by civilian affairs is the normal stuff of day-to-day life. Uh, you'll notice it's not, even, it's not even bad things that can entangle you. It's normal civilian affairs. See, Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. And so it's likely there were Roman guards stationed outside of his prison because often soldiers in that time functioned like uh, security guards or bodyguards where their task, the orders they had been given, was to make sure no one gets into this prison and the prisoner doesn't get out. And that's a task that requires focus, right? If if you're at a mall and you're, you're managing the mall and you wanna hire a security guard, focus is one of the primary things you look for because a security guard who's trying to balance their budget on the spreadsheets on their phone while shoplifting is happening all at different kinds of stores in the mall, where they're not paying attention to suspicious behaviors going on, that's an ineffective security guard. Uh, or, or think of a, every parent's worst nightmare, a distracted babysitter, where, where they've entrusted the, their toddler, the, the pride and joy of their life into the care of this 15-year-old. And if the 15-year-old is watching Netflix all the time, is trying to come up with the perfect Instagram caption on their phone or scrolling through their TikTok feed, if they're distracted by all of those things, they're not going to know when the toddler is in distress, when there is need that needs to be addressed. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, if you get too wrapped up in civilian affairs, you are not going to be able to endure the suffering that will come your way. You need to be focused. This kind of raises a natural question for us. What are the civilian affairs that most entangle us? Do do we get most wrapped up in discussions about our financial situation? Are, Are we always worried about not having enough? Or if we have lots, are we always thinking about how we can get more? That is a thing that can take your focus and entangle you such that you are not able to think about what should be the highest priority, the orders you've been given to be faithful to the mission, the ministry set before you. What about about your career path? This is linked to money, but some of us are are super career-driven, where we always want to hit the next milestone, we want to get the next promotion. That's a thing that can take your focus off of the primary orders you've been given. What about the future of your family? That's a good thing to worry about. But are you so consumed by it, you can't think about how you should think about that in light of your greater calling to gospel ministry to your family? What are the civilian affairs that entangle you? Timothy needed to be focused on his marching orders in order to endure the suffering that would come his way. So that's the first illustration. The second is is that of an athlete. So we'll read in verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. So so the athlete in this image, what Timothy is supposed to learn is that they need to be disciplined to obey the rules of the competition they're engaging in if they want to win the prize. Uh, We know this because there are prominent examples of cheaters over the history of sports Uh, that have lost all earnings and any chance at winning. Uh, In 1985, there was this golfer at the British Open named David Robertson, who, who over the first 14 holes of the course consistently, when, when he would, he would drive off the tee with his first shot, when he would arrive at where his ball had landed, he would frequently move it with his hand or by kicking it a little bit, sometimes up to 10 feet to a better spot. So that his next shot was set up to more easily go where he wanted to go. Uh, after nine holes, his caddy quit on him because he was just disgusted by the, by the cheating. And at the 14th hole, he was kicked out of the tournament. Uh, he was banned from pro golf for 20 years. And he was fined what is in today's dollars, 90 grand. And, and we get why the, the punishment is so steep because he violated the very core of the sport, what it actually meant to play golf. You move the ball by hitting it with your club, not by tapping it with your toe or by picking it up and dropping it in a new place. So it is for Timothy that there are certain things he needs to continue on in obediently, even in the face of suffering, lest he violate the core of what it means to follow Jesus. He needs to obey the rules that he has had set out before him for years, even in the face of suffering, to ensure that he will get the prize that he has raced for his whole life. So the question arises for us, much like it did with the example of the soldier, what are the rules that we find hardest to follow? What is it that the Bible teaches about that's the most difficult for us to obey and to obey joyfully? Is it what the Bible says about money, things like sell all you have and give it to the poor? Is it, like, uh, is it what the Bible says about things like marriage and sexuality that sex is reserved for marriage and that marriage, by God's design, is supposed to extend for all of life between one man and one woman. Is it, is it what the Bible teaches about how we're to treat our enemies and those who hate us? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. What are the commands of Scripture that you find hardest to obey? Because in order to endure suffering, you're going to have to be disciplined to obey those things even when it gets really hard. Timothy needs to obey in order to endure. And the final image is is that of a farmer. So we read in verse 6, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And this is a bit of an easy one for us to understand because in our world today too, farmers are looked at as some of the most hardworking people. Uh, My dad worked on our grandparents' dairy farm for a number of years and I remember him uh, always waking up before any of us was up, before the sun had risen, going to work all morning, coming home for a quick nap, returning to work in the afternoon, day after day after day. And in harvest time, it only ramps up because you have your normal tasks, but then also all the additional field work as you work to maximize the ideal window in which to get the harvest done. And it's the lazy farmer who does not benefit from their own crops, but it's the hardworking one who does. Paul is calling Timothy to work hard to endure suffering, that it won't be easy, it will require effort. How are we setting ourselves up to endure with hard work when suffering comes our way by the way we live now? This was was the example that, that spoke most harshly to me, that exhorted me the most strongly, because I know there are lots of easier and lazier options for me to gauge in, instead of intentionally investing and working for the ministry God has put before me. Netflix doesn't take much effort, and there's a lot of good shows on there. But if we want to be ready to endure when suffering comes our way because of our ministry in the gospel, we need to be hard workers. We need to labor for the gospel. So all of these illustrations share a similar structure. For the, for the soldier, for the athlete, for the farmer, there's an end goal they want to get to, The soldier wants to please his commanding officer. The athlete wants to win the prize. The farmer wants to enjoy the harvest. And for each of them, there's a way to get there, focus, disciplined obedience, hard work. And think about how big of a call this is on Timothy's life. How can he ever do these things? It seems like the impossible task, but thankfully comes verse seven. Read with me what what Paul says here. Reflect on what I am saying For the Lord will give you insight into all of this. So we see the cooperation there, right? Timothy, you need to reflect on these things. Reflect on the high calling I've just placed before you. But God will give you understanding. And when we think of this in light of verse 1, Timothy, be made strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. What Paul wants Timothy to know is that, yes, this is a call that will cost you a lot. It will ask a lot of you to endure through suffering for the gospel. But you are being strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as you reflect on these things, you can trust that God will equip you with what you need to live faithfully through the suffering, to endure for the gospel. And now uh, the passage kind of shifts. So we've, we've looked at how Paul is explaining how Timothy is going to have to endure for the gospel if he is going to be faithful in the ministry that he has before him. We're going to see now that Paul uh, turns to begin to encourage Timothy by that very gospel. So Timothy is encouraged by the gospel to endure for the gospel. Uh, we start in verse 8 with, with these words, Remember Jesus Christ. What, what, what Paul is doing is he's pointing Timothy's eyes and his attention back to where the, the cause of this mission that he's on comes from. Uh, he's pointing him back to the bigger story that he's a part of, the one that begins with Jesus. Uh, we Mennonites, my last name is Friesen, we love a good family history. We've got a whole museum dedicated to it here in Abbotsford. Uh, my great uncle, compiled the, the stories of one of my great, 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 grandfathers who came from the Ukraine and fled political unrest and opposition to Canada. He put it in this little booklet that I read when I was like 17 or 18. And, and in the story, it, it details all of these close calls my, my great grandfather Cornelius Friesen had on his way from the Ukraine to Canada, how he had to sneak through military checkpoints, how he had to stow away on trains that he didn't have a ticket for, all of these close calls to get to Canada. And these are the kinds of stories that exist in every cultural tradition, every family background at some level. And what they serve for in the present is a teaching opportunity. There are things that are true in the past that can encourage us and strengthen us and give us instruction in our present. And that's what Timothy is going to learn from the example of Jesus. As we, as we go on and read more in verse 8, we're going to see that Paul focuses on two things. So he says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. These are the, these are the two things that Paul's going to focus on about Jesus, in particular for the purpose of encouraging Timothy to endure. The first is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what Paul wants Timothy to learn from that is that Jesus has already defeated the greatest enemy Timothy will ever face. Yes, His opposition, the suffering he will face, will likely come from a whole range of people, a whole range of sources, some really powerful and some less powerful. But in the midst of all of that, Paul is saying, Timothy, remember that Jesus raised from the dead, defeating the greatest enemy. So even if your suffering takes you to the point of death, you can have hope for the future because Christ has defeated death and he will raise you to life as well. The second part of Jesus' character, his nature, and his work that Paul points Timothy to is that he descended from David. And at first, that might not seem like an important detail to include, but if you remember back in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, there are all of these examples of how David, Israel's king, led them from a time of being a relatively small, not very powerful nation, to right on the precipice of their most prosperous time, as a people unfortunately after david the subsequent kings led israel into sin and they were sent into exile where they were ruled over by other empires because of their sin but the hope that they clung to was that one day god would return them to their land and would reset up the kingdom they had once enjoyed and at that time the kingdom would be ruled over by one who descended from david that is precisely what Jesus came to do. In his life and his death and his resurrection, he reset up the kingdom of God. And though we don't see it fully enacted across all of the world yet, what we know is when we think about Jesus being descended from David, he is a king whose kingdom will reign eternally. It will not fade, it will not be destroyed. So as Timothy faces opposition, As he suffers for the gospel, he should remember that Jesus is that one who descended from David, whose kingdom will never be torn down. It will last forever, no matter what suffering his people are subjected to in the meantime. Uh, This is a great summary of the hope Christians have. That that even in the face of suffering to the point of death, we have hope because Christ has defeated death. And even in the present, as we are, we are squashed or, or cast to the sides of society, we, we know that we have a kingdom that will not be like that, that Jesus will return and fulfill his kingdom one day. And we can have confidence in our present suffering that we will be vindicated in the end. Uh, this is the kind of, of hope that has empowered Christians to suffer for their faith, even to the point of death, for centuries. Uh, in 1539, there were, there were two men, Jerome Russell, who was a little bit older, and Alexander Kennedy, a little bit younger, uh, who were sentenced to death because of their Christian faith. And as the two men were walking to the site of their execution, Jerome looked over and saw Alexander, the younger man, look nervous. And so here is what he said to him, facing their own death. Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The pain that we are to suffer is short and shall be light, but our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Let us therefore strive to enter into our Master and Savior's joy by the same straight way which he hath taken before us. Death cannot hurt us, for it is already destroyed by him for whose sake we are now going to suffer. That is the Christian hope that encourages us to endure in the face of suffering. The the tricky thing for us is that for many of us, uh, that is a foreign situation. Yes, there there might be some of us who God calls to places where where we do have to face our own death for our faith. But the, the question I would want to ask is, are there words that we can substitute in for death cannot hurt us, that is true of our lives in the present, in the here and now? Things like no amount of financial hardship because of our faith can ruin us because we know we have the God who will provide what we need and has already provided what we most need, Jesus' sacrifice in our place to make us right with God. How about no amount of social rejection can truly cast us out because by our faith in Christ, we are reunited by God's grace with him and are adopted into his family forever, to never be cast out? What about no amount of political opposition can crush us because we know the kingdom of God will return, will be fulfilled, and will endure forever? I think the reality is is that most of us would affirm that those statements are true. If you were a Christian, you could confidently say those things, yes, are true of me. I believe that to be true because of God's grace in my life. The problem is that we're not very good at moving from encouragement to endurance through suffering. And and the reason is is because that's a movement that requires us to use muscles we haven't used much before because of the relative peace that we've been able to live in. But as times change, as we look ahead and and see, like Timothy, suffering on the horizon, like any good gym trainer would with, with a new person who's just walking into the gym for the first time, you start small. There are small things that we can begin to do to embed that encouragement inside of us such that it will enable us to endure suffering when it does come. And I'm basically talking about having intentional gospel gospel conversations woven into your daily life. Start in in your home. Start talking with, with your Christian roommates, with your family, with your friends, your parents, your kids. Start talking about what it is that Christ has done for you and why it matters to you in the present. And and then begin to, to broaden, to take a little bit more of a risk. Talk about it with, with an acquaintance you run across at church every week. Just encourage them with the gospel. Tell them how you've been encouraged by the gospel. Maybe with a Christian co-worker. So, so that when when the person who's cutting your hair, who you know isn't a Christian and who you suspect might not be the biggest fan of Christianity, asks you what you did over the weekend when they when they have to make that small talk with you for the 20 to however long it takes minutes to get your hair cut that you know you are confident that that encouragement is embedded so deeply in you that even if the conversation becomes awkward and even if it leads you to some kind of suffering you have so embedded that encouragement inside of you by all of those conversations where you are speaking and being reminded and reminding others of the encouragement of the gospel that you will be willing to endure any suffering that might come your way, so start small. Uh, Paul then gives an example, that was an encouragement from Jesus. He's gonna then give an example that involves his own experience of suffering in verse eight to 10, where he says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. See, what what Paul is doing is he's contrasting his suffering with the unimpeded success and fruitfulness of the gospel. Uh, Christians are promised that they will suffer if they live faithfully. They will be at odds with the world in some capacity, and they will be opposed by the world because of that difference. And yet, Paul is saying, any suffering that might be inflicted upon me is powerless to stop the gospel. And what does he say because of that at the, in verse 10? Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, it's precisely because Paul believes that God's word cannot be chained and is not chained, no matter how much suffering his people have inflicted upon them, that he continues to endure suffering because he knows it is for the sake, the well-being of those who God is calling to himself. Paul willingly endures suffering because he is so encouraged by the fact that God's word is not and cannot be chained. Uh, If if you've been watching the service last week, and again this week, you'll you'll hear us talking about, you'll remember the video of Pastor Ezra talking about the the church planters training center we're investing in, in in Asia. And we learned in that video, and if you've been around Northview for a long time, that there is all kinds of opposition to the gospel in that part of the world. And there are church planters and pastors who have suffered significantly for the sake of the gospel. And they do so precisely because of this idea that Paul is talking about here, that though they might suffer, God's word cannot be stopped. Their mission will bear fruit because there is nothing the world can do to stop the gospel. So they will continue to endure suffering so that the gospel goes forward so that God calls people to himself through the preaching of his word. Just like Timothy was to look to Paul as an example of that kind of endurance, that kind of being encouraged by the gospel to follow after in his ministry, I I think looking at these church planners and pastors should be a model for us where they have had to lay aside all kinds of comforts and pleasures and relationships, all kinds of stuff. have had to endure rejection, even violence and imprisonment because of the gospel, but they are willing to do so because they know God's word cannot be stopped. This is the mission they have been called to, and they know God will accomplish it. And this is why we invest in these kinds of missions activities, because of this encouragement that we have. This is why we invite you to give, why we invite you to pray for people in these regions, because we know that an investment in the mission of God where his word is proclaimed is a safe investment, because God's word cannot be chained. So Timothy should be encouraged by that. Even if he is imprisoned, the mission does not stop. The final place Paul turns for encouragement for Timothy is to what he calls a, a trustworthy saying. In verse 11, he literally says, here is a trustworthy saying. And it's likely he's going to be referencing a hymn or some kind of recitation from the early church. Uh, But it's one that he thinks encapsulates the hope of the gospel that Timothy should remember as he suffers and endures suffering for the sake of the gospel. And, And here's what it says. I'm going to kind of give some commentary on it as we go to clarify a few things. But starting in the second half of verse 11, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And what Paul is referring to is is conversion. Romans 6, 8 says that when you become a Christian, you have died to a life of sin and have been raised to new life in Christ. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy with that, saying, Timothy, if you truly have a sincere faith, like I said you did in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, if you truly have that sincere faith, then you can be guaranteed to live eternally with Christ. The, The next part in verse 12, it says, if we endure... We will also reign with him, and that's speaking directly into the Timothy, into the situation that Timothy is looking at coming his way. That he will have to endure, and what Paul encourages him with is that endurance leads to reigning with Jesus. That's one of the rewards talked about in Revelation three, twenty-one. That that those who endure suffering, remaining faithful to Jesus, will be co-rulers with him in that new kingdom. That is the reward for Christians who endure, that they get to reign with Jesus. The next part of verse 12 turns a little more somber. This whole time he's been exhorting and encouraging, and now he gives a warning. If we disown him, he will also disown us. This is almost a direct quote of, of what Jesus said in Matthew 10:33. If you deny me, says Jesus, I will deny you before the Father where if Timothy doesn't heed the exhortations, if he doesn't mind the, the call, if he doesn't reflect on the things Paul has taught so that he can obey and persevere through suffering to endure for the gospel, then he should expect rejection because he has rejected Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you have nowhere else to go to be made right with God. But then in verse 13, this trustworthy saying ends on another positive note. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And the the difference between this warning about about disowning him and the encouragement about being faithless, why those two things are different, is because faithlessness speaks to a a weakness of the faith, a a level of doubt or uncertainty for a season, instead of an outright rejection like disowning does. What Paul is saying to Timothy here is that Jesus is gentle with those who struggle, Because he is faithful to those who belong to him. If you have truly died to your sin and live to new life with Jesus, even if you struggle with weakness and doubt for a season, you can trust that Jesus will remain faithful to you. He will bring you through. What an encouragement that is. So so to end, because this trustworthy saying puts such a fine point on what Paul is trying to get Timothy to do, Timothy, you need to endure for the gospel, and the way you're going to do it is being encouraged by the gospel. Because this trustworthy saying reflects that encouragement of the gospel so well, I'm going to read it one more time to close us off without any of my own commentary so that we can reflect on these things, so that God can give us understanding in these things to prepare us for the suffering for the gospel we will have to endure if we're faithful. So again, in verses 11 to 13, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful of of the hope that we have in the gospel, that, that Jesus, through his resurrection, has defeated death, and that he is the king who currently reigns who we can trust will come back to set up his kingdom fully one day. So in the midst of that, I pray that you would empower us to be faithful, that we would would endure with focus, that we would endure with obedience, that we would endure while we work hard, that you would remind us of the gospel so that we would be encouraged by it to endure for it. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, by the Spirit's power. Amen.